Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Today, we have a very special episode. We're celebrating our 100th episode in our partnership with Rhode Island PBS with a taping in front of a live studio audience. I'm joined by Jim Lutis, Executive Director of the Pell Center at Salve Regina University and host of Story in the Public Square on Rhode Island PBS. Together, we're going to talk about civic leadership and the legislative session with House Speaker Joe Shikarchi and Senate President Dominic Ruggiero. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with House Speaker Joe Shikarchi and Senate President Dominic Ruggiero. I'm asking questions along with Salve Regina's Jim Lutis, uh, host of Story in the Public Square in Rhode Island PBS. Thank you for joining us tonight. Our pleasure. Uh, so tonight's theme is unfinished business, and I'm not talking about the Celtics. <laughs> talking about the unfinished business of the House and Senate as we enter the final weeks of the legislative session, and I understand that the House Finance Committee has posted the budget for Friday. Um, at this point, you both must have a good idea of what's in the budget and what's out. So one thing I'm curious about is what tax reduction proposals will make it into the final budget. Speaker, Governor McKee proposed reducing the 7% sales tax rate to 6.85%, which would save people about $35 million a year. Is that idea going anywhere? It's possible. It is still too early. I know you're going to say still we too early. Yeah, you, Come on, let the, me finish. Let me finish, it. Ed. Let me finish. You said that we posted the budget. We posted to preserve under our rules. We have to post 48 hours in advance. We'll continue to work on the budget. Well, the Senate president and I have been working all weekend on the budget. We met on Friday, on Monday. We met yesterday. We met today. We're meeting tomorrow. And have either we, of you we, been we, enthusiastic about that we, tax cut idea? We, we, we may have to post on Monday as well if we don't come to, you know, final agreement. So the, the posting today was more of a signal that we're working in. We're very close, but we're not there yet. And we're working. So the governor's idea has merit. We're going to discuss it with the governor tomorrow. Uh, I'm not prepared to say what's in or what's out the budget. I know everybody would like to find out when you get a little sneak preview in today's show or whatever. And I saw one of your competitors 
senators earlier. They, she was chasing me down as I left the state house, asking me these questions. But it's still too early. I can tell you that the communication has been very good. It's about priorities, the Senate priorities, the House priorities, the governor's priorities. Uh, this is my second term as speaker, and my uh, third year as the House speaker. We've, I've done four budgets. I can assure you that the budget will be balanced, because constitutionally it has to be balanced. We're going to try to meet the needs mm -hmm. of our state today, but also look at what we have coming on the horizon. Senator, have you sensed any enthusiasm from your membership for that tax cutting idea on the sales tax? I have received some support from uh, some of my senators. I was a co-sponsor of the legislation that uh, uh, the, the one of our senators from Warwick put in. Uh, and uh, uh, I, that, I believe, was 6%. Uh, I would like to see a reduction in the sales tax because I think we can pass that on uh, to the consumer. Uh, I'd like to put, obviously put more money in the pockets of, of uh, residents of Rhode Island. Uh, but as the speaker said, it's a, it's a working document right now. We're still continuing to have meetings, and we're still going to move forward uh, on the budget. So uh, I, to answer your question, I am a fan of reducing uh, the sales tax because I think it will be helpful to the state, uh, but that, that has not been resolved at this point in time. Senator, similarly, uh, the, the governor proposed stopping a 3% increase in the state gasoline tax that would go into effect on July 1st. And it's estimated that would save the consumers in the state about $25 million this year. Is that something that you've also heard support for in your caucus? Uh, not so much as other issues uh, at this point in time. Um, I know what the governor's proposal is, and uh, obviously the, the budget is a working document, so... Uh, we'll meet with him and we'll see what uh, what he has in mind and uh, we'll consider his uh, his uh, suggestions. Attorney General Peter Narona's requested an additional $2 million for his office, but Governor McKee rejected that request in his budget proposal. Speaker, with the House, will the House budget include that funding for the Attorney General's office? We're looking at that. Uh, <clears throat> normally, uh, you know, He's asking for 20 FTEs, those are full-time equivalents, 20 jobs. That's a huge number. But the Attorney General has brought some information that I believe there's some uh, awards that he has won with certain class action cases that actually have a, a restricted receipt with reimbursement uh, funds available to pay for legal fees. So we're certainly studying that. If we could use that money, then I think there's a possibility you'll st the Attorney General will see some of those jobs that he's been requesting. That is under review by the House fiscal staff at this time. Uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, Senator Ruggiero has uh, proposed a, uh, an exemption to the tangible property tax. Uh, did you expect that to be part of the, of the budget? So I will first say I congratulate the, the Senate in general. I think that's a good idea. I'd love to reduce taxes for everybody, sales tax, uh, gasoline tax, uh, reduction of tax. I, I'd love to do that. It's a matter of balancing of, about how much revenue you have and one-time revenue and recurring revenue. I think the idea has a lot of merit. I think in addition to reducing taxes for that particular tax, another benefit is the reduction of the... Um, cumbersome filing of the forms, the regulation of it. This is not a tax that collects a lot of money for cities and towns, but it becomes a real big burden, especially on small businesses. So that is an idea with a lot of merit. It has a lot of, uh, you know, uh, benefit to do something like that. We're studying the cost, and at what level do you do that? Do you, you don't really, I don't think you can really exempt everybody, but you might, could pick a level of 40, 50, 60,000, and you could look at that, and that would take a, a lot of small businesses out of that equation. So I think that's something that I want to congratulate Senator Bajeria for bringing that forward. I think it's a good idea, and it's certainly under consideration.
Senator, with the budget, will the budget reinstate the cost of living adjustments for state retirees, or will it include some one-time stipends in place of COLAs? There's 14 different bills with various uh, gradations of that idea. What, what do we expect to see in the budget? Well, you, you just hit the nail on the head. Uh, there are 14 different versions, and right now we're considering uh, some of them. We asked um, the treasurer for some information uh, so we could make a... Uh, a uh, decision regarding this, uh, uh, and we haven't received the information yet as far as the study. Uh, so I don't know if that's doable at this point in time. L like, like the speaker said, we're still looking at everything at this point in time uh, to see what we can, we can fit in the budget. So, I mean, I don't want to commit to something like that until I see the information in front of me. Mr. Speaker, uh, as we're sitting here, uh, Congress in Washington is uh, hammering out a, a, a solution on the debt uh, crisis that we were facing. Um, one of the provisions that's uh, uh, reportedly uh, in, the, in the legislation would call for the clawing back of COVID relief funds. Do you have any sense of whether or not Rhode Island would have to return any uh, previous COVID awards from the federal government? back to Washington. So I've learned a long time ago, nothing's done until it's done. So I don't know what that final product in Washington is. They had a seven to six vote yesterday to pass it out of committee, so it's very close. I've heard, uh, you know, from the, in between the breaks that I've been negotiating with my partner and friend here, that from Washington, uh, there's all kinds of amendments coming in from the far right of the Republican caucus, the far left of the Democratic caucus. I don't know what it's gonna be, but to answer your question, Jim, I am concerned I don't think so. I certainly don't hope so. I, you know, I don't want it, it to be done. And I've had a little bit of comfort in talking with our congressional delegation, Senator Reid, Senator Whitehouse, uh, uh, Senator, uh, excuse me, Congressman Mag Magaziner, and they've informed me that they don't think so. Again, but the product isn't done. They think it's going to be COVID money that's sitting in the U.S. Treasury that has not been allocated to the states yet. And uh, so I'm hopeful that the money that we have gotten, that we have used, and will continue to use, every dime, every federal dollar is available to Rhode Island, I want to take full advantage of that. I, want to, I don't want to give any of it back to Washington. So if that money's available, we're going to use it, and I hope that it's, there is no clawback. If it is, we'll have to deal with it, but I'm reasonably confident that there won't be any uh, clawback from the money in Rhode Island we already have. Another piece of unfinished business is a shoreline access bill for the second year in a row. The House has passed legislation addressing shore access, and now the Senate is considering its own version one that would go even further than the House bill. So, Speaker, can the House and Senate bills be reconciled? Uh, you know, will the Assembly pass something on this subject this year? I, am high, I have a high degree of confidence that General Assembly will pass something. Uh, even though there's a difference in feet, there's also a difference in starting point of where you decide is it where the shoreline access begins. Is it the vegetation line? Is it the rack line? Is it the high, mean height water uh, line? We're going to get to that. I feel very confident the two sponsors, Mark McKinney's a good friend of mine from Warwick. He's my state senator. The representative is Terry Cortrovan. She worked very hard with the study commission in Speaking with both of them, they have been having uh, conversations. I think there is uh, a compromise in the works, and I fully think that will pass the General Assembly this, this term. Is there a compromise in the works? Has an agreement been reached between the House and the Senate? As of this moment, no. 
But and, I will say we are very close, and, and to, if it, we certainly could and probably will work on it, but we've been very busy with the budget, as you've been hearing in the other questions you've been asking. And you touch upon uh, two of the most significant differences. Uh, the Senate version would say the, the vegetation line, the House version would be six feet from the recognizable high tide line. Which one is it going to be? I don't know if it'll be either one or both, or I don't know what it'll be. It's, it's the details are going to be worked out, but either way, in either version, the public will win. And I'm proud of that. And the public, uh, the guaranteed right in, in our Constitution that all Rhode Islanders enjoy will be memorialized in statute and c more clearly defined in statute. And I think it'll be a big benefit for all of Rhode Island. So you expect something this session? I expect something this session. And Senator, I can't what guarantee, but I expect that. Mm -hmm. Senator, what do you say to those who argue the bill would represent an unconstitutional taking of private land? I think no matter what happens, it'll end up in court. Of Regardless of what line you use, uh, we're hoping that we can come to an agreement on something that would be acceptable to everyone. Uh, and I know the House has worked on this, and I know that uh, the Senator McKinney has uh, worked on this. So, I mean, I don't, in, I don't encourage a, a constitutional challenge, but it depends on, uh, uh, you know, where that line is drawn. Uh, I think we can come to an agreement, and I hope we can satisfy uh, the public by doing that and avoid any kind of constitutional challenge. Senator, just a sort of a follow-up of sorts on this. As, as you uh, near the end of the legislative uh, cycle, and you've got so many different things that are coming to do, and the clock is literally running out in some respects, when you negotiate on so many broad different issues, whether it's the budget or a complicated uh, uh, provision about, uh, about where the water line ends and where the uh, public land begins, what, what, how do those, those, those different negotiations interact with each other, or do they not at all? Give us a glimpse into how that legislative process works. Well, obviously, there was a commission that, uh, that studied the, uh, uh, that particular issue. Um, and those people have the level of expertise. I can't tell you which one I favor because I don't know. I was not involved in that. Uh, but uh, Senator McKinney, uh, was, when he was not a senator, he was on the commission and he did a lot of work on that. Now that he's a senator again, he's uh, t kind of taken the bull by the horns and he's been working very closely with the House leadership uh, on this issue. So. I mean, I hope there's not a constitutional challenge because I think if that happens, it's going to tie, uh, it's going to tie the legislation up for years. Yeah, the question I think I'm trying to explore a little bit, though, is the you're negotiating on the budget, you're negotiating on other sort of uh, legislative proposals. Do those does the negotiation in one bucket ever affect the negotiation in another bucket? Are they all tied together, or do you no, take them sort of in we, sequence? I can tell you from the House perspective, we, list, we, we talk about and discuss each individual issue, and there's no linkage. We, we look at bills that we think are good, and we try to move them. We try to change dates. We try to make changes that, to you know, come to a middle ground when you can. You can't always do that, and I understand that and recognize that. But uh, we listen to the testimony. Not many people believe this, but the reality is that the, the committee process works, and it works very, very well. We, well, we may decide to move a bill or pass a bill, and I'm pretty sure it works in the Senate. They listen to what has happened in that committee process. They review the testimony. They review the written testimony, the email testimony that comes in. Some people can't make it to the State House because of the hours that, that we have hearings. So all of that goes into the mix. And as the Senate president said, we had a commission of experts, and they weren't all on the same page. Believe me, they all had different points of view. But they let, when you have a commission like that where people really want to work, they listen to each other. 
and they talk to each other and not at each other, and they come to a conclusion. I think it was either unanimous or nearly unanimous, the recommendation that came out of the House Study Commission. I know the Senate had a study commission on LIBOR, the Law Enforcement's Bill of Rights, and that was uh, also one that was a lot of testimony, a lot of expertise went into, a lot of consideration. And that's how you really you know, tackle complicated issues. And this was a complicated issue. Mm -hmm. It's been around for a while, and it's important to the people of Rhode Island. I think we're going to get it done this year. So, Mr. Speaker, you've recently proposed the Rhode Island Life Science Hub Act that would create a quasi-public uh, quasi corporate body for the life sciences. Can you give us just a sense of what's in that proposal and what would it mean for the state of Rhode Island? What it would mean is, uh, if you look at life sciences in general, it's a high growth area. It's a high growth for private sectors. We're looking to, to bring some of that activity to Rhode Island. Massachusetts has several different hubs. Obviously, the most prominent one is Kendall Square. Harvard University is the beneficiary of that and the spinoff of all those great therapies and great ideas and great drugs that are being done. But also Worcester and Mansfield have a very successful hub of biosciences. And I think Rhode Island needs to look at that very seriously. I want to congratulate the Rhode Island Foundation who did a report and showed it to me about a year and a half ago, and it seemed very reasonable. Uh, they, they've done that. We're going to try to uh, you know, emulate that to some degree in Rhode Island. It's a great opportunity to not only create jobs, uh, we have a unique opportunity in Rhode Island because we've got a huge federal grant for our new health lab. And if you look around the state, they need wet lab space and they want to be next to the state health lab. So we have the 195 land that has a lot of availability and a lot of great incentives thanks in part to the Senate president and the work he's done on that for over the last five years. And there's a great opportunity for us to bring small incubator-type companies here and see if we can grow some kind of a business. If you look at where Moderna was, and we all know Moderna from the COVID vaccine, where they were, they were a company that got started in Kendall Square, right up the road. Speaker, do you have anyone in mind to head that nonprofit? And could it be someone named Neil who did an introduction today? <laughs> <laughs> you ask a, a very fair question. So first of all, if I had the power to hire, I, my first opportunity at 12.01 today would be to call up Neil Steinberg and ask and offer him the job because I think he's incredibly talented. I think he's bright. I think he's smart. I think he'd do a fat, phenomenal job. But I don't get to pick, unfortunately. Under the legislation, it's an executive branch, and we have separation of powers. It'll be the governor's choice, but I, I'd be the first one to write a letter of recommendation for Neil Steinberg. Yeah, Mr. Speaker, I'm curious, is there, a, a, when I looked at the legislation to get ready for this, the question that lingered in my mind was, what's the difference between what, there's the, what the life science hub would be and the work that Rhode Island Commerce does today? This would be very specialized. If you look at the way the board is put together, you have very specialized people who are in the health science field exclusively. And this is not just commerce, which has to do with a lot of broad business. This is people who know that industry. This is what's worked in Massachusetts. If you look around the country where they had very success, this is the type of model that has worked. And that's what we're trying to do. <clears throat> the last time Globe Rhode Island had legislative leaders together, you remember, was January 2020. The House Speaker at the time, Nick Mattiello, told us that climate change was real, but that there is nothing Rhode Island can do to address climate change in a way that's real or meaning impactful. Speaker, now that you're in that seat, what do you say? I say respectfully, I disagree with my predecessor, and I think our actions and my actions as Speaker and our actions as the House have proved that. We've passed significant environmental legislation, the historic act on climate. I'm very proud that the House passed that very early in my first term. It was, it was like 30 days into the job. It was the biggest signal uh, uh, bill we had done at the time, and in, in the last 
uh, election cycle. I think the environmental group said this was the best year in the history of Rhode Island. We did PFAS for water. And when I say we, I'm talking about the House and Senate. We did PFAS for food packaging. The Attorney General just initiated a lawsuit based on what we as the General Assembly did in the last two cycles. We've done a lot of areas on renewable energy. We did wind energy. So I'm extremely proud of the work we've done in the environmental uh, field and we're going to continue to do that as we move forward. Uh, I'm proud to, uh, of the body of work that we've done. And I will tell you, we have a very robust environmental committee. We have a very robust environmental caucus in the House. And it's real. Anybody who tells you that climate change is not real is, you know, they don't believe in, I guess, the COVID stuff and all that stuff. They're just deniers. But in reality, we have a problem. How about this year? Is the Environmental Justice Act going to pass? It's under consideration. Uh, there was some testimony, a lot of testimony for it, but there was also some testimony against it. I think that it's an idea certainly that needs to be explored. And I uh, carried out the Senate. I know it did. Uh, Karen Alzate uh, uh, is the sponsor in the House. I met with her on Saturday to discuss it. I think that there's a lot of merit in that bill. I just think we have to make sure there were no unintended consequences. We have a, a, a very significant uh, offshore wind development going on. We don't want to hurt that. We don't want to hurt good private, se uh, good private sector paying jobs that are in, that, in and around that port area. But I think that that concept, maybe not this year, but I think that concept has a lot of merit. And maybe we could- Maybe, maybe we not could, this year, though. Maybe not this year. We'll have to see. Senator it's still under consideration. What do, you, what do you say about, can Rhode Island do anything about climate change? Uh, first, I want to get back to a question that, uh, that you asked the uh, speaker. Sure. I want to commend him uh, for what he did on his biotech uh, legislation. Uh, I think that's exactly what we need down in that area uh, when they're going to build a new uh, health lab uh, to, to, to give a shot in the arm in that area. And, and like the speaker said, I think that will attract uh, more companies, uh, you know, in the meds and eds type situation. Uh, so I want to commend him for that. Now, getting back to your question. Act on climate. Do you think? Do you? What do you think of what Matty Yellow said about Rhode Island can't do anything about climate change? We're so small. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think climate change is here. We really don't know it yet because uh, we haven't really felt the total impact of it. We're a coastal community, and uh, if if everything goes the way people think they think it's going with the rising seawaters and things like that, we're vulnerable. So we have to take a look at. Uh, what we're doing. I mean, they had a situation down in Newport where there was a, an erosion. Uh, I, I think that's just the beginning. Uh, we certainly have to protect uh, our coastal areas uh, because we're basically a coastal state. And what if, do you think of the governor's idea to follow California's lead on vehicle emissions, bring them to zero emissions by 2035? Do you, do you both support that? Uh, I think it's a great concept. Uh, I'm not sure if the time frame would, would adhere to something like that. Uh, I think eventually you're going to have uh, something like what California does. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really know a lot about uh, what they did out there. So when will you both be driving an electric vehicle from Warwick and North Providence to the State House? So let me, I want to go back to just the, the act on climate that you talked about. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's important to understand that Rhode Island can be a leader. I, yes, we are a small state, but we can be a leader, and I'm proud of the accomplishments. And people all over the country are looking at what's been happening here. We had David Brinkley, a, a nationally known environmentalist here, came to Rhode Island to praise the work that's being done in Rhode Island. In addition to that, I'm proud to say that Rhode Island will be hosting a, a, a very significant international conference on the environment later this year. 
as well in October in Newport as well. So there's a lot of good things that it's, it's not just the act that we do, it's the leadership that we do here in Rhode Island. So Act on Climate sets goals, but what are you going to do to achieve that goal? Are you in favor of those emission standards that the governor's talking about? I am in favor of them. I just don't know, and I haven't, know, uh, haven't done any deep dive into 2035, whether that's the year, is it 2034, is it 2036? I don't know, but I will tell you that Detroit and the big, the big automobiles are already heading that way. All of, their, all of their cars are going to be all electric in the, in the 2030s, depending on which company you're talking about. So that's only six or seven years away. The uh, big Detroit, the big automakers are heading to an all-electric fleet. Have you made the switch yet? I have not, but I will tell you that I think the uh, Senate president and I, that we, ha we drive in hybrid cars right now, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yes. State cars? Yes. State cars. Mm -hmm. Senator, the uh, environmental groups have made uh, a bottle bill uh, a priority for this year. And nearby states such as Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York all have uh, bottle uh, container deposit laws on the books and have for decades. Is this the year that Rhode Island joins them, and do you think that's a good idea? Well, I, I think we have to take a, a real good look at how we handle plastics as far as uh, uh, bottles, uh, 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 nips, uh, and any kind of plastic uh, uh, items that uh, that we can recycle. Uh, there are some programs out there, especially in Europe, where they have some uh, level of expertise as to how to do that. Uh, so we're looking at everything. I don't think we're ready for a bottle bill this year, uh, but what I would like to see is probably establish a commission to study that and to take a look at the, what other communities do, what other countries do. Uh, because I know there's some technology out there uh, that can address that. So, Are you uh, talking about high heat paralysis, the bill that uh, Senator uh, Lombardo uh, introduced last well, year? Well, I'm talking about high heat paralysis. Um, I'm, I'm talking about other methods. Uh, and, and I know they, uh, that people are concerned about uh, the the product fumes and things like that. Yeah, environmental groups were outside the state house protesting that idea. What do you say? I say, how are you going to get rid of the plastics? Uh, where are you going to? Are you going to ship them? Uh, what are you going to do with them? They want a bottle bill. So what I will yeah, tell like you when, they the, get, uh, when, they, when they get it, they might not want it. What I will tell you about uh, the bottle bill, as you said, I, I think that obviously we need to look at that idea. But there are different models. If you look at what Maine is doing, they have a, a producer level, uh, you know, litter control tax that works better than the bottle bill, as some people say. Oregon does it a little bit different. And I believe, I have been told this, I haven't studied it, but over the last 20 years, no state has instituted a bottle bill. As a matter of fact, one state has repealed a bottle bill. So I think we need to just look at, as the president said, this is an issue that's been around for a long time. Well, Massachusetts, uh, Connecticut, and New York have it. But they also have litter there too, Ed. So you can't say they're litter free. So you have to say is what's going to be the most effective. Just because another state has it doesn't mean we need to do it. I like to do it the best. I like to be, the, so let's look at what Maine is doing. And let's look at what Oregon's doing. It's and a let's litter look, tax. In yeah, Maine? it's called a producer's tax. And producer's they tax, tax. everybody. So let's look at what other, other states are doing. And maybe let's look at also Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, and, you know, Vermont. See what they're doing. And let's take the best practices of all that. And that's how we get big things done. Um, so, Senator, uh, I know that the Senate recently passed your legislation to address lead pipes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what that will do and how fast we can actually see that to have an impact on the health of children uh, in Rhode Island? Well, we have about $140 million to spend on that uh, from uh, the infrastructure uh, bank. Uh, I'm hoping that we can hit the ground running. Uh, I mean, we should have gotten rid of lead pipes 40 years ago. Uh, we knew what the effects were 
uh, on, on children now, we're, we're learning the effects on adults, the older adults, uh, as far as uh, 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 mental health issues. Uh, so, I mean, I think we should address that a long time ago. Now we got $140 million to start off with. Uh, obviously, we're going to have to expend more to get rid of all the lead pipes, uh, but I think that's a great starting point. Uh, I think uh, some of these uh, 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 water resource uh, 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 groups uh, can really move this along. I want to work with the Department of Transportation uh, to see how we can do this a little cheaper and extend the money that we have as far as uh, uh, multi-projects, if they're putting a gas line in, if uh, we can get rid of the, uh, uh, the lead pipes at that time. Uh, so that's what I'm looking at right now, but obviously it's a, it's a work in progress. I want to see what happens in, in the near future once we institute that and how much we're going to need uh, going forward. I could do that one. Yeah, why don't you take that one? Uh, more than three years have passed since George Floyd was murdered at, murdered at the hands of Minneapolis police, but despite calls for change, Rhode Island has not changed the Law Enforcement Officers' Bill of Rights, known as Leah Bohr. Speaker, is this the year? I believe you will see uh, some action on LIBOR. I'm not 100% uh, committed, but I think we're closer than we've ever been. And I think uh, the Senate's done, like I said earlier, they've done a good work on this with a study commission. And uh, they're coming together on a bill. We've been in consultation with them. I think you'll see some action on LIBOR today. What's the main sticking point? Is this the size of, of the panels? It's it, a, the size of the panels, who's on the panel, how long of a potential <clears throat> suspension. We, you know, we talk about LIBOR, we're only talking about the civil violations. This doesn't affect the criminal side of it at all. So you understand that. And it's also, uh, you know, the makeup of it, who, what, what outside groups are going to be on it. And also there's a, currently under the law, I guess there's a gag order that the police chief cannot discuss uh, a LIBOR, that needs to be removed. It needs, you need, in order to get confidence in any kind of a hearing process, you have to have transparency. So that has to be removed, and you have to have transparency in that process. Senator, what's the last obstacle before we see a, Leo, a LIBOR bill? I think, as the Speaker said, I think it's the composition of, of the board itself. Uh, we did a study a couple of years back on uh, LIBOR. Uh, that's what we're using as a model for our legislation. And I think uh, it's something that we can get through and I think uh, uh, get to both chambers. And I think it's something that will benefit us. Uh, keep in mind, we also initiated the body cameras. So that, Correct. even though it's not the same thing, that kind of helps that particular situation. Uh, so I, I think we can make some adjustments. And, and you know what, Ed? We can always come back. If it's not working, uh, we can always come back and fix it. Uh, but I'm confident that if we send something over to the House, uh, I'm confident that uh, they, they might be, uh, it might be acceptable. You expect to see it pass this year? Uh, well, the, the Senate is going to move the bill. So uh, we can't seem to go more than a couple days in the United States without there being another example of gun violence, uh, often mass violence. Um, advocates in Rhode Island are calling for the Assembly to pass uh, an assault weapons ban. Um, Senator, your chief of staff is running for Congress. He supports... No, he's running for the Senate. Uh, sorry, running for the Senate. Uh, he uh, supports an scam. assault <laughs> weapons ban. And I'll be, break some news right there, right? Um, Where is he? Do you, do you agree with uh, that position to, to ban assault weapons uh, in Rhode I, Island? I, I think if you're going to ban assault weapons, you have to ban it nationally. Uh, I mean, you can't have Massachusetts... Obviously, some people disagree. Uh, uh, you can't... I mean, if, if you... If, 
Iowa, if they don't if they don't ban it, I mean, someone can go there and buy an assault weapon and come to Rhode Island or come wherever. I think you have to do it on a national level. Speaker, what do you say to that? Uh, this certainly this there's a lot of uh, what I would say people who feel the same way as the Senate president. Jason Knight is ha has the bill in the House. Uh, you know, I just want to talk about the bills that we have passed. It's not like we haven't done anything. Last year, we did a magazine uh, limitation. We raised the rate, uh, age to buy guns from 18 to 21. We've done school safety in Rhode Island. We've done red flag. We've done bumper stocks. So since I've been in leadership as the majority leader and the speaker, we've passed significant gun legislation. And, this and I, have a, I have a meeting tomorrow with some of the gun advocates, and I understand how, how they feel very very strongly about this issue, and it's about protection, primarily of their children. And I get it. And, and you're right. We see we see these uh, acts of violence everywhere, and it's tragic. But I think there's a balancing act. And I want to point out one thing. These are not easy bills. Everyone makes it sound like it's easy. Both the Senate president and I had to go down on the floor, which is to, ex to exercise our ex officio capacity to vote in committee to move the bills out of committee. I remember. So, so that's, that, that doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen for regularly. It was, that's how important it was. How about safe storage this year? Will that pass? I think this is it's the same situation. We're going to consider it. It's still in a consideration. I'm talking to Justine uh, Caldwell, a sponsor of the bill. I met with her yesterday. We had a discussion about that as well. So am I right? No gun bills are going to pass this year? I would not say, I would not make that uh, prediction at all. And I don't think that that's an accurate statement. But I, I just think it's, we have to be very careful and deliberate. That's the approach I take on all legislation, especially bills like this as well. Mr. Speaker, the, earlier this year, Governor McKee uh, amended his budget proposal uh, to include a special scholarship for students at, the, at Rhode Island College, essentially uh, offering them uh, tuition support in their third and fourth years of studies. The HOPE scholarship. The HOPE scholarship, exactly. Uh, I work at a center at Salve Regina University, the Pell Center, named for Claiborne Pell, who I know you I worked, worked for, for as an intern. Um, uh, did your homework. I did. Uh, 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 he believed that uh, scholarships like that, grants like that, ought to follow the student and not support any individual school or type of school. Could you see uh, Governor McKee's proposal be amended to, so that Rhode Island students could attend uh, other Rhode Island schools beyond uh, Rhode Island College? Uh, not at this time, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for Senator Pell. As you said, I, I did work for him, and I also received uh, Pell grants when I went to college as well. So I, I'm the beneficiary of that. And I think those programs are still in effect today, and I think you have to look at a holistic approach. So I understand why the Hope Scholarship is very important to Rhode Island College and to Governor McKee, as well as they're trying to launch a, a cyber, uh, you know, curriculum and uh, I guess Congressman Langevin has been very involved in that and, and so hopefully you're going to see both. I think it's important but we have to support first. I think your, your, your assertion is a good one. Let's let the, the money of the scholarship follow but there are money in scholarships like the Pell Grant that are available to students who go to any institution. Also in, I would point out in the state budget last year and this year we also have a private scholarship program as well that the Governor McKee has put additional funds on. I'm thinking of if, if we have enough money in the budget of possibly increasing as well. But right now we need to support our state schools. It's usually when people go to CCRI and people go to Rhode Island College, you're the first generation of Rhode Islands to do that. That's a wonderful thing for their families and it's a wonderful thing for our workforce in Rhode Island. It's good economic development. We want to bring these life science companies here. We want to bring all these companies here. We have to have an educated workforce. So we need to make sure that college is attainable and affordable for all Rhode Islanders. And, and your goal would be something we could work to as we, hopefully we get more 
revenue and we expand the budget, however that comes. But we need to take care of the immediate needs, the immediate needs of people who go into CCRI and Rhode Island College. Senator, you've championed legislation this year to allow online gaming or, or iGaming in Rhode Island. If you were a betting man, and I know you are, uh, would you expect that uh, legislation to be the target of a constitutional challenge saying any gambling expansion requires state and local votes? Uh, we're looking at that particular issue as we looked at it when we started with sports betting. Um, looking at that particular issue, obviously we want to avoid any kind of constitutional challenge. So we're looking very closely at uh, the composition of the legislation, what's required, what could be challenged uh, in a court of law, uh, but we're also looking to see how we can generate some revenue. And, and I, I think uh, uh, with, with, with some people, I mean, you have some issues up there. Uh, I think people might be more comfortable uh, voting from home, uh, I'm sorry, betting from home. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. But I, I think it's, it's going to be, I think it can be a tremendous revenue generator. And uh, I certainly want to get in on the ground floor. I don't want to wait another year uh, because I think we'll lose the market. And, and that's what happens in some of the things that we've done. I'd rather be first and, uh, and we can adjust whatever we have to adjust. I think we have, right now it's going along uh, pretty good as far as the conversations uh, that the lottery is having with IGT. And, and with valleys, so uh, I anticipate uh, a piece of legislation coming out uh, that we can uh, uh, support and avoid a constitutional challenge. So it's basically a work in progress right now. Speaking of uh, gambling and gaming, Senator, there was a rally at the State House uh, recently uh, where uh, advocates were uh, uh, campaigning for the removal of the exemption that permits smoking uh, at the state's casinos in Lincoln and Tiverton. Uh, do you support? Uh, removing that exemption? Uh, actually, we're looking at that issue uh, right now. Uh, I know people have concerns, health concerns. Uh, I want to kind of work with Bally's. I mean, that's an old structure. Uh, I, and I'd like to see some kind of uh, HVAC work done to that place. And the, the, the smoke basically accumulates in the upper floors. Uh, and it just sits there. Uh, so I think they have to do something with the HVA system uh, and get these smoke eaters. Uh, I, I mean, uh, look, those people took those jobs knowing that they were smoking up there. Now, all of a sudden, there's a small group that uh, feels that it's not good for their health. I mean, they could wear masks. They can work in an area where uh, uh, they, they don't permit smoking. Um, so I think the adjustment has mm -hmm. to be made, not legislatively, but between the uh, the workers and the and and valleys. What so. do you say to the the union leaders who have come down to the state house and argued that those employees should not be working in in smoke filled environments? What do you say to them? Well, I say that, that those were the terms and conditions under which they accepted the jobs, and now uh, they're they're sort of going backwards. Uh, I don't know. We will lose without a doubt one third of our revenue if we initiate non-smoking. Well, it, I mean, you've got uh, Foxwoods, uh, Mohegan Sun. They don't have smoking. They're doing great. I don't know how great they're doing. I, I'm not really uh, up on what they're doing. Uh, I, I just, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to risk losing revenue. 
so, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Speaker, on the topic of housing, let's come back to that for a moment. Um, there's no doubt that we're in a housing crisis in the state, and there's been a lot of effort, both legislatively and administratively, to try to address that. The Rhode Island Foundation, in a report earlier this year, said that the state needs up to 55,000 smaller units for housing uh, to help meet the need. Um, are there are there specific things that the legislature might do this year to help address that? And, and that's question number one. And question two would be, is there something that needs to be done either regulatorily, statutorily, that would help actually spur new development to, to start addressing the, the, the need for 55,000 new units? Well, I'm going to be very selfish and say, yes, you can pass the 12 uh, uh, bill package that the House has passed uh, and hopefully turn that into law. And I think that will see a spur of private development of housing. But again, I want to go back to what we've done historically. The, the governor and the Senate president, myself, we passed, uh, you know, 25 percent of the upper allocation of $1 billion went into housing. We've done bond issues for housing. We've done a housing production fund, and we pre-funded that as well with ARPA money. In addition to that, we had a uh, high-end taxes on homes sold over 800000 So we've done things. This is a long-standing problem in Rhode Island. It's not unique to Rhode Island. If you read the Boston Globe, which I read, okay, uh, it's, it, is, it, is, it is actually a worse problem in Massachusetts. And I've had legislators in Massachusetts call me and say, what are you doing about it? And can I get copies of your bills? Because I want to pass them in Rhode Island. I mean, in Massachusetts, what you're doing in Rhode Island. Because we need to. We're also dead last. I can talk to you about housing for the rest of the show. We are dead last in production right. in the country on a per capita basis. There's just, the regulatory process is too difficult. A lot of cities and towns, and I've been criticized from a lot of quarters that I'm taking uh, rights away from cities and towns. The reality is they use the zoning tool as a way to control population, and they don't want those people in their neighborhood. It's sad, but it's true. And, we, and I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm not going to let that intimidate me from moving forward. This is a serious crisis in Rhode Island, and it's about time that we address it and bring it to the forefront. And if I have to be the target of the guy who's doing it, then so be it, because I know what I'm doing is right. I know it's going to make a difference. And you look at the housing advocates. We have two study commissions. We have a low and moderate housing commission chaired by June Speakman. We have uh, Tom Della, who's the planner from Central Falls and Johnston on the um, land use committee. They put together 14 bills. Out of the 13 bills, the four, 13 of the 14 do not cost the state a dime. There's one that gives a financial incentive for TOD, which is transportation-oriented development, to create high-density uh, um housing in and around bus hubs and train stations. So th there are many things we can do. I will tell you, it is not going to be an easy fix or a quick fix, but we've moved the needle forward. We're going to continue to move the needle. As long as I'm speaker, this is going to remain a, a top priority, not because I want it to, which I do, but it's because my caucus and my membership does, and the people of Riley need it, and we need to address this. We made an allocation last year's budget, $10 million $10 million to crossroads to, to help them create more housing for homelessness people. We've done things this year. We're going to continue. We waived application fees as part of the package for renters. I can go down the list and talk about all 14 bills, including extension, but I don't want to use up all the time on, you know, my pet issues, which are the housing issues. But it's serious problem. Uh, I propose serious solutions. And anybody's easy and quick to criticize, and I welcome that criticism, but show up and give me a better idea. Because right now, all I'm hearing from some of these cities and towns is, no, we don't want to do it. No, we can't do it. No, we don't have the infrastructure to do it. We don't have, we have well water. We can't do it. We don't have paved streets. We have dirt streets. All of that, you, there's, there's an, a lot of opportunities for affordable housing, and it's a whole 
plethora of, of ways to attack the issue, but they have to step up and do their part. And that's what this, these packages do, this bill. My colleague Brian Amaral just reported that the private financing gap for the Tidewater Landing Soccer Stadium project in Pawtucket has risen to about $10 million. Speaker, are you getting worried about that? Yes. And, you know, the developers promised that the project will include housing, but we haven't seen any details. Are you getting concerned that the housing portion of that project will never materialize? It's too early. I'm always concerned. When you have a big ticket item and a big project item, I'm always concerned. Whether it's the Superman building, whether it's the South Key in East Providence, whether it's the Tidewater. We are in very difficult economic times. Uh, interest rates are rising historically fast. Materials are up, there's a labor shortage, and consequently, all of these big projects cost more. So do I worry about it? Yes. But I, I also read The Globe, and uh, the uh, developer seems very confident that he can close this gap by the end of July. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt to do that, and we can evaluate it as we go forward. Yes. As far as Tidewater, and I have the governor's assurance, and uh, then Commerce Secretary, now Housing Secretary Pryor, there's so far not been one state dollar has been allocated to that project. Project. So I trust Mayor Grebian. He did not put any of the city's money in yet, and I trust the governor to make the right decision. They're the executive branch. We are the legislative branch. We make appropriations. We don't actually, you know, manage and run these projects. But I have uh, made my concerns known to both to Secretary Tanner and to Secretary Pryor and to the governor. And right now, I'm still in the wait and see phase. And I want to hope. Hopefully, it's successful, and hopefully, it continues. But yes, I am worried about it. I'm worried about a lot of <clears> things. Today is David Cicilline's last day representing the 1st Congressional District. Senator, you've got some members of your chamber running in Congress. Who are you supporting? Uh, right now, I'm not supporting anyone for that position. Uh, I have two members uh, of uh, the Senate that uh, are interested in that position. I want to wait to see who files uh, when the filing date comes uh, forward. But at this point in time, I am neutral on that particular uh, position. And Speaker, I know you decided not to run for that seat, but we've got 15 Democrats, including House members, who are running for that seat. Who are you backing? Three House members, one former House members. I'm going to uh, emulate the president. It's too early to see what happens. And people will change their mind. People can change their mind. The filing deadline is not until July 1st, I believe. So you think, I think people who are in this field, some of them may drop out, and there may be a surprise candidate that uh, will get get in the race. All right, Senator, when do you expect the legislative session to end this year, and what are you going to do immediately afterwards? I'm guessing <laughs> it involves Orbis. Mm -hmm. uh, well, we don't know when it's going to end. Uh, obviously, it's a work in progress. June 19th? Uh, that sounds like a good date to me. Uh, but uh, we have to wait and see. We have, as the Speaker said, we have some things that we have to iron out. Uh, I think we're on a good track for that. Uh, I never predict uh, when we're getting out because everyone gets enthused. If it, you don't reach that date, uh, they get very unenthused. What's the main thing you want to achieve before you, before you leave? Uh, uh, obvi obviously, uh, the budget is a big issue. Uh, we have some money. We have to spend it prudently. Uh, we have federal money that I want to take a good look at to see how much each agency who's gotten the federal money, how much have they spent. As the speaker said earlier, I don't want to leave a dollar on the table of federal money. So we're looking at that aspect, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll have to see. But uh, uh, you know what? I think if I was a betting man, which I am, I'd, I'd probably say around the 19th that that would be a good date. Speaker, what's your main priority before the June 19th? 
uh, obviously the budget it's in the house. It's every, I get this question asked all the time. I know the budget reports. besides the budget. The, 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 the house, my housing package, the yeah. 14 housing bills that we talked about, and then the bioscience as well. Those are the three main uh, priorities for me this session, and, and it's also for my caucus and my members. You, when we talk about housing, it is it cuts across all lines, all. Progressives, moderates, conservatives, Democrats, Republican. Housing is an issue everywhere. Everyone has different ideas on what to do and solve it, but it is an issue that's near and dear. And a lot of the polling data I've seen, it's very, very significant on the minds of Rhode Islanders. Speaker Shikachi, President Ruggiero, thank you for joining us today. Now thank you can you. applaud. We're joined now by Wendy Schiller, a Brown University professor of political science and the author of a new book, Inequality Across State Lines. She's here to offer some analysis of what we just heard. Welcome, Professor Schiller. It's great to be here. So first of all, just give us your reaction to what you just heard. What stands out to you? Well, first of all, how much they think they're going to get done uh, that's just almost ready to be packaged, but also some pretty significant differences, lowering the sales tax. There seems to be a little bit of tension there. Perhaps the smoking provisions for workers, there seemed to be a little more support in the House side than the Senate side. Uh, Senate President was talking about that and worrying about, really seems to be concerned about revenue and thinking about that. So they have to balance that. You want to drop the sales tax, You've got to find revenue somewhere else. And I think uh, the, the emphasis on housing is so important because if you want people to stay here or you want young people to settle here or you want working families to be able to afford to live here and work here, right, to have a labor supply, to attract new businesses, you have to have places for people to live. And so I think that's an interesting and seemed passionate push that we heard about. So those are the things that really struck me as some differences um, and also um, uh, the assault weapons ban. You know, it really, the Senate president was quite firm in saying what he thought, and I think that uh, doesn't bode well for passing that. Other states have done it, Illinois, Washington State. Uh, but, you know, being part of incremental gun safety efforts is also very important. Yeah, you, you, in your book, you delve into the patchwork of state policies on domestic violence, including gun laws, right? So just in general terms, how is Rhode Island doing on domestic violence policy? Well, since 2018, Rhode Island's done considerably better. We conform with federal mm. law now. If you've committed misdemeanor domestic violence, now you are prohibited from owning or possessing a gun. 28 states in the union have that. Not even, you know, not all states have it. Uh, the red flag or, you know, extreme risk protection order, that's a really important uh, uh, law that affects domestic violence. It goes broader than that. And, you know, really we have to back up social workers. We have to back up law enforcement. It's one of the most dangerous things for law enforcement to address a domestic violence call. Uh, many uh, law enforcement officers are injured in that process. So putting more funds, more training, more support in the whole safety net for people who are subject to abuse, I think Rhode Island's well on its way, but I think there's more work to be done. Do you, uh, do you see Rhode Island as, as, as actually moving the needle on, uh, on, on the assault weapons ban, on gun legislation in general? 
I think Rhode Island uh, uh, was ahead of the game in terms of cartridges, you know, limiting the amount of ammunition that you can purchase or, or own or convert into something that holds more ammunition. Uh, and certainly raising the age, a lot more states are doing that, actually. Even Texas is considering a law raising the age to 21 to buy weapons. I think these are incremental steps. They may not satisfy everybody, but we have such an epidemic of gun violence. And for a small state, I always believe Rhode Island packs a big punch. Uh, uh, we just, I don't know where it is maybe East Coast, I'm not quite sure, or we're louder than everybody else. But what we do really does resonate. And I think the politicians we produce, for the most part, are also capturing the national imagination. And that helps move the needle. Yeah, let's go ahead. I was just going to ask, what's the most significant thing Rhode Island could do that it hasn't done in terms of gun violence? Well, certainly, I, I do think making, uh, restricting at least, you know, who can have an assault weapon. You know, people don't like the, the term ban. You know, nobody likes ban, right? It seems un-American. But really saying, what do you want it for? What do you need it for? How will it be secured? You know, do you have a good reason? Now, the Supreme Court has really reduced states' ability to do that, but they haven't eliminated states' ability to do that, to say, what's your compelling reason for having a particular firearm or wanting to leave the house with a particular firearm? So I think we could, we could get there. Uh, it doesn't have to be an all-out ban immediately, if that's not what the Senate president thinks that they can get passed, but certainly taking more steps to control access to these very lethal weapons. Yeah, so you, some of your scholarship uh, looks at how the fact that we are a federal republic with different sovereign states that make up this union of ours uh, affects uh, 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 domestic violence laws and how they're actually applied. How did, how did the uh, senator's response on the on the gun legislation question sound to you when he said you can't do it locally if you don't do it nationally? Well, I think the problem with that argument is that when the national government, when the federal government passes a law, in this case the Violence Against Women Act originally in 1994, states have to comply, right? States have to pass their own complementary laws, which this state did in 2018 with a misdemeanor law. So uh, unless states go along, unless states implement and pass laws on their own and create infrastructure to implement federal law, uh, then it just doesn't do anything. It doesn't really affect, it doesn't accomplish the goals for which it was passed. So I don't really buy that you have to do at the federal level first. Certainly we look at same-sex marriage. That came up through states and state activity. And women's suffragette 100 years ago came up through state activity. So I, I don't buy that entirely. But I do understand politicians' reticence in saying we're going to ban something. I think, you know, it just rubs people the wrong way. And if you don't bring them along, they'll launch lawsuits. They won't want to comply. So I think it's important to try to persuade voters about what you're trying to do. What's the most surprising thing you heard tonight? The most surprising thing I heard was the, the sort of complete agreement about climate change being an issue. Hmm. I mean, I think 10 years ago, I'm not sure we would have heard that from the leadership at the time. It was only a few years right, ago. Right, it was only a few <laughs> years ago. But, you know, really, Sheldon Whitehouse, I think, gave a record number, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a number of speeches on the floor of the Senate to the point where his colleagues pretty much asked him to stop because he just would not stop talking about climate change. And people say, well, it's not. But now, people, you know, you go down to places that are beautiful shorelines and you look for the beach and it's not there. And that's because of climate change. So I really admire, as a political observer, the way that politicians in the state have really shifted, they've really pivoted, and they've really now made it something that they... But we see now with the smoke we got from Canada, you know, everything crosses borders. And so it is true that, you know, we want to be part of a holistic community that is trying to do these things across borders and certainly uh, within our own borders. And, you know, uh, they, they talked about passing the act on climate, but what does Rhode Island need to do to reach those targets? It just sets goals. 
Well, you know, we have a little bit of a, of a, you know, contradiction. So we used to be a really big manufacturing state, and now we're not. We don't really do as much manufacturing. But you need some industry, right? And so that creates pollution. Even the bottle bill, I, I agreed with you. You know, I grew up in a different state. Well, I grew up with the bottle bill. You know, like you, you saved your bottles and you got your money back, and that was your, you know, weekend spending money. Uh, but the idea that if you encourage people to do that, you've got a lot of bottles and you have a lot of plastic. So, but how do you actually refine that plastic? Maybe Rhode Island could be an innovator in that, um, but then we worry about pollution from that. So even electric cars have to use some electricity. Electricity still comes at the moment from fossil fuel, although we're trying to change that with wind power. So I, I think being open to these things is really important. I think Rhode Island has an attitude that has always been flexible to some extent, and I'd like to see more of what we heard tonight in terms of that flexibility on climate change. You know, uh, Wendy, the, the General Assembly recently passed and Governor McKee signed uh, legislation that allows state employees and Medicaid recipients to access abortion services. Set against the national backdrop on this issue, how does the Rhode Island law look? The Rhode Island law looks sort of very progressive. So you have big states like California, New York, um, that basically say that the state-funded portion of Medicaid, which is split between the federal government and the states, that, that money will pay for termination of pregnancies. You cannot use federal money of any kind to terminate a pregnancy to pay for that. So it's just saying the state, using its money, will do that. And state employees, also people say we're using taxpayer money to fund this kind of service. State employees are taxpayers. They pay taxes. So the idea that they be denied coverage that private insurance companies give other employees in the state doesn't make sense to me, although I completely recognize the moral objection to terminating pregnancies. So I see that balance here. But here is a question of equity, and I think that for, particularly for state employees. One of the major issues or one single issue that isn't being addressed, wasn't brought up tonight, that you think should be before they leave on June 19th sounds like the date. Oh, there's a couple of issues. Um, I think uh, particularly when it comes to children and families and the way that we address families in need and children in distress situations, we've had very difficult times for a long time through multiple governor's administrations with this, and we still don't seem to be getting it right. And I think that's something that I, I know that uh, Governor McKee is trying to do that with change in personnel, but we really have to get that right because if you want us to be a healthy state, we have to start with children. And so that to me is one of the pressing things I didn't hear discussed tonight that I think that I would like to see the legislature put more emphasis on. Yeah, the Senate just confirmed a new DCYF director. Exactly. What's going to be the main challenge he faces going And in? that director, I believe, is going to make more money than the previous director. Yeah, was, I, it, was that wise to increase the yeah, salaries? Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I firmly believe you have to be competitive. If you really want somebody who's going to come in with energy, another state will pay them that much more money to do this job. Our children are no less valuable than another state's children, so we have to pay for the very best quality of people. So we really have to be competitive in that way. And one of them is really create, shoring up the infrastructure. Caseworkers are overworked. As I said, social workers are overworked. And adding more people. You know, Peter Nerona, the Attorney General, wants to hire more people so that they can prosecute more cases, whether civil or criminal. And, you know, uh, Scorchy, the Speaker, said, well, he can't have all the people. But you really you need more people. And you need people who are qualified to really create the kind of safe circumstances that we need across the board. And that's worth spending money on in a, let's see, am I getting this right? You know, $13 billion is going to be close to $14 billion budget. That's a lot of money. And I think they can find money to do that, to shore up what we already are trying to do well. What do you make of the growth in that budget? Year over year in the last 10 years, we've really seen substantial growth in the state budget. Yeah, it's more than doubled. Right. right? In, in 10 or 12 years, yeah. it's more than doubled. 
I wonder where all the money goes. I do. Sometimes I think, wow, just like the federal government is an extremely large budget. Nobody knows what's in that budget, and even if they tell you they do. At the state level, they do, but it always seems that we hear stories of waste, or we hear stories of inefficiency, and we hear stories of people who want to innovate, but they're stuck. And I, I, a lot of it is passed through. In other words, we get reimbursed by the federal government for a lot of what we expend. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of misleading to think it's that big. But nonetheless, if you want to lower the sales tax, you're going to drop revenue. Okay, give money back to us, but then how are we going to sustain housing? How are we going to do those things? So I think it would be nice if um, the legislature, with all due respect, would release the budget less than, you know, more than two weeks or two days before they're going to pass it. And I think this idea of keeping it top secret, this is not Mission Impossible, right? We're not Tom Cruise. <laughs> we pay the taxes. We ought to see what's in the budget. And I think we need more time to see what's in the budget. So I hope that in the future we'll be able to have more transparency in this budgeting process so we can really see where these dollars are going. You mentioned the passion that we saw on display, particularly from Speaker Shikarchi, about the uh, housing issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, when he talks about it, it sounds pretty clear that this is a really difficult political challenge that transcends the state. Do you have any confidence that they're actually going to be able to do something that's going to actually improve the availability of affordable housing for people who might want to live in the state? I, I think if they can preempt zoning laws, even if not all the zoning laws, but some of the zoning laws, if they can actually do that and survive a court challenge to that, that makes a big difference. Because sometimes these areas that are zoned that, that are would be great for, you know, there's nothing there, or it's an abandoned building, or it's a vacant lot. We should be building housing. And if people want their children and grandchildren to live here or return home and be able to buy a home, you know, talk to anybody, it's extremely difficult. So I think that's really where they will succeed if they can survive out that particular problem. It's a small state and people are used to things a certain way in Rhode Island. Um, you talk to people and you say, well, they used to be that store or that store when they give you directions. You know, we have to change our ways and sort of say goodbye to some of those old landmarks. And really I didn't want to say goodbye to Benny's, though. That no, Benny's. <laughs> I actually, I was really, really sad. Um, but, but this is an example. The Benny's in Providence off Branch Avenue, it, it, it closed. I know we were all very sad about that. But, you know, three businesses opened up in that space. You know, a, a lifespan, you know, a... a, a, a uh, a healthcare facility. And Chipotle, my son's Chipotle, down there. Chipotle, and I, I believe it's Jersey Mike's, I'm not positive. But the point is, there are three businesses, at least there, where there used to be one. And that's the way Rhode Islanders really have to start to think if they want to sustain and build and, and be able to have a place where their kids and grandkids can live. Before you go, i got to get your thoughts on the CD1 race. Who is standing out so far, and who do you expect to be the next congressperson from the great state of Rhode Island. Well, I'm not asking. I'm not answering the second question, uh, but I will. I, I will say that I'm looking at the June 30th deadline for fundraising reports. I think that's really important because uh, we're going to see who's. You know, Sabina Matos, Lieutenant Governor, had been doing very well with fundraising relative to her colleagues, but other folks uh, are coming on strong. And so, you know, the mayor of Pawtucket said he was not going to run. So I think that takes somebody out. I agree with both the speaker and the president. We're going to wait and see who actually files and who's running. But fund. Raising numbers are important because then you're going to start to see endorsements in July. After we all go to the beach on July 4th, you'll start to see some of the establishment people kind of really supporting a single candidate. 
uh, I think Sabine Matos has visibility. I think Sandra Cano has visibility. I think John Consalves has visibility, just to name a few. And certainly Aaron Regenberg has already uh, accumulated some endorsements. In the end of the day, it's which candidate can get the most mobilized subgroups, like unions, like teachers' union, for example, private unions, a really mobilized group, Working Families Party. Do they make sure they're registered to vote? Do they get out the door for the primary? That's the person who can engender most success. And there you have to look to people who've run successful campaigns in the recent past uh, to be able to do that. Professor Schiller, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. <laughs> Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in partnership with Rhode Island PBS. This podcast was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Our show with PBS was produced by Abby Olvin, director Sherry O'Rourke, events manager Alisa Icono Mayers, floor director Lynn Young, studio manager Joe Brethwaite, cameras by Lindsey Poole, Blake Carpentier, and Calvin Hill, video by Tyler Pellegrino, audio by Mark Smith, chief content officer Jan Boyd. And if you like the podcast, follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to see what we look like, go to Rhode Island PBS YouTube channel. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.